Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. NASA scientists aren't just focused on outer space. They're also focused on the inner workings of Earth's atmosphere, oceans, and how they've evolved over time. As past discussions on weather geeks have confirmed, one aspect of our world that we know is changing is our climate. Today, we're joined by one of the most noted climate scientists in the world, Dr. Gavin Schmidt, director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He's been at the forefront of climate research, using models to see how our planet has changed over centuries and how it may keep changing in the future to come. To model a more accurate picture of our planet's future, we must take a look at the past and understand the impacts that both internal and external forcings have. What kind of forces? Let's ask Dr. Gavin Schmidt. Gavin, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's a pleasure for me as the host of Weather Geeks because, uh, as I noted there in the introduction, you're, you're one of the most famous, and let's just, I want to keep it real because that's what I do on the podcast, one of the more famous climate scientists in the world. Uh, you've published, you're a very well-noted scholar and scientist, but also I feel one of the best in the business that communicating more broadly to public stakeholders and policymakers. So uh, I thank you for this idea or this concept of being what I call at least an end-to-end scientist. Um, Before we get into the sort of heart and soul of this discussion, I always ask my Weather Geeks guests, how did you become interested in climate science or meteorology? Um, it was a bit of a roundabout uh, path. I, I was never um, a weather geek as, as a kid. Um, that, w- that, w- that wasn't the way in at all. I, I was always a mathematician. Uh, you know, I liked puzzles. I liked uh, solving equations. I liked, uh, you know, just kind of exploring uh, mathematics. And so when I was a kid, that's what I really wanted to do. I went to college. Uh, I just did a mathematics degree. I didn't take any electives. Um, And then uh, at the end of that, I really didn't know um, what it was that uh, that I wanted to do, and so you know, I I, I traveled around the world for uh, for a couple of years. I did all sorts of uh, odd jobs. Uh, you know, I was a I ran a youth hostel. I picked grapes. I was a waiter, um, and then uh, I kind of got a little bit bored by that, and I thought, well, let me let me let me go back. Uh, let me go back to school. Maybe I could do a PhD or something. And uh, and I remember going into uh, the university in London, University College London. And uh, this would have been about July, I think. Uh, and then asking them, so, you know, can I, can I do a PhD? And, uh, and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, no, no, you can't just walk in here and ask to do a PhD. There are applications and, uh, and you know, and th- yeah, there's all sorts of processes that have to be gone through. And I said, oh, well, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really uh, didn't mean to mess up your system. And they said, well, yeah, but go, and, go and talk to that guy over there. And uh, so I went over there and he said, oh, yeah, I just got this thing funded. When can you start? And, uh, and I said, well, a couple of weeks. And he said, sure. And uh, the thing that he had funded was, uh, was to look at um, uh, the mathematics uh, of, uh, of the ocean. And I kind of um, relatively 
uh, idealized ocean, but but recognizably an ocean that, uh, that, that had something to do with the real world. And so I started to get into uh, applied mathematics, um, uh, using uh, equations and understanding to solve problems that uh, from then weren't terribly connected to the real world, but as I've progressed to become more and more related to uh, what's actually happening uh, right now. And I, I want to just set the stage for Dr. Schmidt because he is, as I mentioned earlier, the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Uh, I'm a former NASA scientist myself. I was at Goddard Space Flight Center uh, in Greenbelt, Maryland. And GIS, which is what we call Goddard Institute for Space Studies, is very much affiliated with at Goddard. Uh, Gavin has been at NASA GIS since 2004. He was the principal investigator for the GIS Model E Earth System Model. Uh, before that, he was the associate research scientist at Columbia University and also did his PhD, as you heard, in applied mathematics from University College London. Uh, he also has a BA in mathematics from Oxford University. Uh, and those of you that are weather geeks that are certainly, you know, very sort of routinely listening to the podcast, you know by now that the atmosphere, whether we're talking weather or climate, is fundamentally governed by it's very complex equations. And so, as I always share with my students at the University of Georgia, uh, you better like uh, math and physics if you're going to study meteorology and climate as well. And so I think Gavin is uh, living proof of that. You work with models. So give, give our weather geeks listeners sort of a 101 on, first of all, how weather and climate models are similar and or different and why we have to use models to study the climate. I'm going to ask you, answer your second question first. So, so why are we using models, right? You know, we have observations, we, uh, we have a history of observations, but where we're going and what's going to happen, you need to have a model. There's no, there's no observations of the future, uh, not for weather timescales, not for climate timescales. Uh, and so you have to have some kind of model uh, to make any kind of prediction about what's going to happen. Now, it's not obvious that your predictions are going to be skillful. And so the test of a model is then whether it's useful. Is, is, is it going to be a skillful prediction? And so we spend a lot of our time when we're constructing models trying to find ways to demonstrate whether our models have skill or not, right? So how do we build these models? Well, we take all of the observations that we can see of, of processes, right? The things that are happening, you know, why a cloud forms, why it dissipates, how the winds move the ocean around, how the rainfall and buoyancy forcing changes the circulation in the ocean, how all of the, the rain on the land infects um, uh, changes the soil moisture, how that affects the local climate. All of those things can be can be measured uh, in situ. We, you know, we can put a uh, a measurement uh, in the soil, in the Arctic, in the ocean. We can see how all of those different fluxes of energy, of water, of mass, uh, depend on the ambient conditions or depend on the larger scale. Uh, circulation. And what we do in a model is you try and encapsulate that as best we can, imperfectly, but in be as best we can and put all those processes together and then see whether the emergent properties of that model, of that simulation, uh, resemble the emergent properties of the real world. Uh, and then, most importantly, you know, how sensitive uh, those emergent properties are in the real world compared to how sensitive they are uh, in the model. 
Uh, and so those are the, that's really the fundamental uh, things that we're doing. And, and that's the same whether it's, it's for weather or for climate. It's just that uh, when you're looking at weather, the predictability comes from the fact that we can follow, you know, large-scale synoptic systems, you know, from one location to another location, right? And we can, and we can do that uh, quite well for, you know, as, as, you, as you know, seven, perhaps ten days. But uh, for, for climate, we're no longer interested in, in, in any specific weather system that's moving around, but we're looking at the, the statistics of the climate. And there, what we have found is that the statistics of the climate are indeed sensitive and predictable uh, to external forcings. Uh, I mean, the, the, most, uh, the most obvious example uh, is, is a big volcanic eruption, right? So uh, 1991, Mount Pinatubo. Uh, big, uh, big eruption put a lot of uh, aerosols and sulfates into the into the stratosphere. Uh, that stayed around uh, because you know there's very little weather in the stratosphere. It stayed in the system for two or three years. Uh, it provided a uh, extra reflection of the sun's radiation. The, the climate underneath cooled, um, and those are the kinds of things where you can predict what the net effect is going to be. Uh, before it happens, uh, just based on your understanding of the physics of radiation, the feedbacks of water vapor, the, the changes in circulation. And, and a lot of the things that we saw with Pinatubo were predicted before it happened, uh, really, you know, a couple of months after the main eruption. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned both of those things, both the weather climate model differences in Mount Pinatubo, because you and I both deal in a world of climate where we deal with occasional skeptics or contrarian viewpoints on climate. One of the things that I often hear as a, a meteorologist and former AMS uh, leader is, well, you guys tell us that we can't predict weather beyond about 10 to 14 days because of the inherent limits in terms of nonlinearities and chaos. Well, how can we trust the climate models? But uh, you, you, you really talked about that a little bit in the notion that we're not trying to predict the exact state of the atmosphere and where the cold front is going to be. We're trying to predict the state of the climate system. Uh, but another one that I often hear is the, the sort of climate argument about volcanoes cooling the atmosphere. I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of these things later, but how do you deal with these sort of things that come up, these things I've often called zombie theories, by the way, which is things that we've heard and disproven as scientists many, many times, but they keep coming up. How do, how do you approach that when people ask you those types of things? What's your approach? So I think that it, it's, it's good to distinguish two kinds of things. Uh, one is, is there a genuine question that somebody might have underneath some of the, the comments that you get? And, and quite often uh, there is, you know, so why do we think that climate models have skill in predicting climate? Like that's a totally valid question. Um, uh, but if it's phrased as, oh, we can't predict the climate, we can't predict weather, therefore we can't predict climate, you know, that, that's a little antagonistic. So if you can get past the antagonism and then actually deal with the, the real question that's underneath, uh, then you can often uh, pull something kind of interesting out of the basic um, misunderstanding uh, that can be useful to, uh, to other people, uh, even if, uh, you know, the person that, that's asking you that can just be doing it for, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to kind of dismiss the results uh, that, that climate science has produced. Uh, and so I've done that quite successfully. I mean, so um, 
you know, uh, a number of my papers uh, have come from questions that uh, were often posed not completely in good faith, uh, but that actually reveal uh, a deeper question that is worth in, uh, exploring. And, and of course, like science, there are all sorts of paths that haven't really been explored. You know, we have some very well-trodden uh, paths where people have done the same thing, uh, you know, or, or kind of variations on a theme going forward uh, for many times. But, but often if you ask a question in a different way, uh, you can actually reveal something quite interesting um, underneath it uh, that uh, that even like people who uh, uh, who totally understand climate science might not have thought about before. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I have the honor of speaking today with Dr. Gavin Schmidt, who's the director of NASA GIS. And we're talking about how NASA research uh, is a driving force in understanding climate. And if you aren't familiar with NASA's Earth Sciences Program, um, NASA studies the third planet from the sun, too. And, and I would argue it's the most important planet for us to study because we're not going anywhere for a while. I think a lot of people, when they hear NASA, uh, don't often associate that with our sciences or weather, climate, oceans, biosphere, and so forth. And yet GIS has become one of the leading centers for atmospheric modeling and climate change. Can you give the, 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 the listeners just a 101 of what NASA GIS is? Let me, let me start off by giving you a sense of what NASA does uh, in terms of uh, Earth observations. I mean, we have dozens of uh, satellites in low Earth orbit or in, in geocentric orbit that we work uh, with NOAA and, and uh, Department of Defense on. Um, and uh, they're producing data that we're using on clouds and temperatures and ozone levels and soil moisture and salinity and wave heights and all of the things that uh, that we can see and then they go into the weather models and they go into our analysis programs to so that we can understand uh, what's happening now nasa gis's place in that is not we don't launch satellites you know we're a small group um uh, in New York City, you know, there's no launch pad on the roof of our building. Uh, but we do spend a lot of time uh, analyzing the data, uh, crunching through the data, trying to kind of distill the, the key processes uh, that are important for uh, understanding uh, what we put in the simulations. And then we spend a lot of time looking at the simulations, building better models, uh, making hopefully improved predictions of, uh, of what's going to happen. Uh, and and, uh, and then looking at the impacts of that, you know, what are the impacts of that on agriculture? What are the impacts of that on sea level, on urban environments? Uh, and trying to put that all together. Now, we're still an institute of space studies, right? So that that's a name that's uh, 
that's that stuck around since the 1960s when we were first started. Um, and we actually now have a, a pretty vibrant group of folk who are working on uh, looking at the climates of uh, other rocky planets. So, so both uh, the solar system planets uh, back through the history of the solar system uh, and then exoplanets that, that, we're, that we're discovering by the thousand uh, orbiting uh, other stars. And so we've been looking at the potential climates and habitability of uh, planets that are orbiting Proxima Centauri, uh, that are orbiting Trappist, that are orbiting some of the other um, uh, stars that we've been looking at, uh, based on our understanding of what kind of star it is, what kind of radiation it gives off, where the planets are. And we're using the same models uh, for that that we're using to predict the climate here on Earth. And speaking of those models, uh, you're the principal investigator for the GIS Model E Earth System model. Um, what is this model and why is it different from sort of previous generations of models? Just give us a little background on that model. And I understand, I think the code's available too if someone wanted to work with it. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, you, you can download our uh, our code base um, if you want to. It's about uh, a million lines of code, but don't be intimidated. Um, you know, it's not that difficult to uh, to read, and most of it is, you know, uh, kind of you know detailed stuff that you probably don't need to get into. Uh, but you can if you want to. It's 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 all in there. Now, the, uh, the this model is it comes from a um, uh, a what the, I mean, what's the word? Um, uh, a heritage uh, of climate models that were first developed in the late 1970s um, at GIS, and then have been added to over the years and worked on by uh, many hundreds of people. Uh, and uh, we, you know, keep making it better as computers uh, improve in their ability to process uh, large amounts of data, uh, as our understanding uh, improves of, of how things work, uh, we can put in more and more details about how things work. Uh, and we've been looking at uh, how skillful uh, that pedigree of models has been uh, literally since the 1960, uh, 1980s. Uh, so we made predictions in the 1980s, uh, not me, but my, my team. Uh, we made predictions in the 1980s of uh, what would happen over the 20th century and early 21st century uh, with rising amounts of greenhouse gases. Uh, we made predictions on you know, what would happen if there was a big volcanic eruption. Uh, we've made predictions about what happens as the sun kind of goes through its 11-year uh, cycle. Um, we've made predictions of what happened uh, in the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago. Uh, what were the elements that controlled climate then? Can we, can we evaluate those past uh, hindcasts uh, against the observations that we uh, that we can see in the real world. Uh, th those are you know proxy proxy uh, measurements. But uh, so so we've been we've been working on that for you know roughly uh, forty years, and it has a an independent pedigree uh, compared to the NCAR model or uh, the uh, Princeton GFDL model. Uh, and so when we put all of these models together. Uh, they have different kind of structural uh, biases. They have different kind of errors. Uh, and what we find is that if you put these models together in an ensemble, uh, we can look for the things that these models have in common uh, and where they differ um, and have a little bit more confidence in the things uh, that they have in common because that uh, is... Uh, 
something that arises out of the commonalities across those models. And, and the biggest commonalities are, you know, the equations of motion, our understanding of physics, conservation of energy. Uh, and so we have more confidence in the things that lots of models do uh, consistently. Um, and, uh, you know, we're still looking uh, into uh, the issues of where, you know, we have models where, you know, one model says one thing, another model says the opposite. Uh, that's those are those are really cutting edge research issues. And you know, as I think about this, we've had Neil Jacobs on on Weather Geeks in the past, the current administrator of NOAA, and NOAA is moving towards this concept, at least in the weather world, called Epic. Uh, I'm sure you've at least heard of it, to, to sort of I guess crowdsource or community source modeling effort. Yeah. Is, is there anything like that in the climate modeling world at this point, or do you still have the, does it still op operate on the notion of this group has its own model? Um, the, the problem with, I mean, I mean, in principle, it would be great if there was more crowdsourcing, but, uh, but in practice, it, it's very hard to do. Um, you know, you need access to, uh, to supercomputing resources. Uh, these are not the kinds of models that run very well in the cloud because you have to move a lot of data uh, around and, and keep syncing the different uh, elements. Uh, so, you know, cloud computing for climate models is not very practical. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in delivering, you know, uh, calibrated models that are the best that we can do uh, is, uh, again, a very tricky task. Um, you know, we have to choose different sets of parameters. We have to assess how well each of those different simulations with each of those different sets of parameters uh, behaves. They have to you know, be consistent with the real world, so you can throw out a lot of the ones that aren't consistent. Um, but you still have a lot of different cases. And so kind of picking through the, uh, the opportunities or, or picking through the... the, the the, the widespread of possible models uh, to produce uh, the one or two or three models that would be useful uh, is uh, a little uh, computer intensive and, and expertise intensive. Uh, and so it's mostly the case uh, that, we, uh, that we're not seeing large crowdsourced efforts here uh, or even university-based efforts. I mean, almost all of the uh, climate modeling efforts uh, that are of... A, a sufficient sophistication and detail uh, to be used by, uh, say, the, the the national academies or the uh, intergovernmental intergovernmental panel on climate change. Uh, they're all run by uh, university. Uh, they're all run by government-funded labs uh, because of the amount of time and effort and investment you need uh, in order to keep these things both up to date uh, and improving. You've, I want to shift gears here in the discussion because I know one of the areas, and by the way, we're talking with Dr. Gavin Schmidt of NASA GISS about all things climate modeling and just some of his perspective in general is one of the key um, sort of actors in this whole climate sort of movie, if you will, that we're living. You've done quite a bit of work in the area of paleoclimates and paleoclimate modeling. And as scientists, you know, we often hear people that will walk up to us and say, well, you guys know that the climate changes naturally, right? Yeah. Or why, can't, why, why, do, why do you believe the humans are causing changes to the climate when we've seen these climate anomalies in the past that were natural? Um, you know, things like the modern minimum, the little ice age. So first of all, talk about why 
studying past or climates or what we call paleoclimate is important. And then um, how does it set the context for those types of questions that we as climate scientists receive as if one of the top climate scientists in the world, Gavin Schmidt, wouldn't know that the climate changes naturally. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so uh, so obviously, you know, I, I find it quite amusing when people assume that I don't think the climate has changed naturally. Um, I, you know, what, how do we know that the climate has changed? You know, because climate scientists like me and, and others have actually gone out and seen the records of these changes uh, in the ice cores, in the ocean sediment cores, in the cave records, in, in the geology that you see all around us. Um, so uh, we, we have known for a long, long time that climate has changed. Uh, and the question uh, that always arises, of course, is why has it changed, right? And so this, this notion of attribution, you know, why did something change the way that it did? Um, uh, in, in climate has, has been a, a very open uh, discussion for, for a long, long time. Um, uh, but in the last, say, 20 or 30 years, it's become much more quantitative uh, than it, it, it ever was. I mean, so, you know, starting from the 1990s, we had measurements of greenhouse gas concentrations uh, in, during the ice ages and, and, and the various uh, oscillations of those. That was enormously valuable. Uh, we've had uh, the ability to bring together, uh, you know, collated data sets uh, from all around the world of what the conditions were like uh, during the last Ice Age, or during the Pliocene, or during the, uh, or, or you know, during the Cretaceous or the Eocene, uh, you know, previous warm periods, um, but also very cold periods like the Snowball Earth uh, that happened uh, perhaps 700 million years ago. So we can look at that record and we can see, uh, you know, massive shifts, um, uh, you know, very, very cold temperatures uh, to very, very warm temperatures on the other side. And, and the total amount of ice on the planet uh, varies by, you know, huge amounts. Um, and, the, and the sea level uh, changes uh, by large, large amounts um, over, over those time periods. And, uh, and so, so the question, you know, for geologists and for paleoclimatologists has always been, well, why? Why? What is going on? And, uh, and so we have been looking, you know, at the mechanisms of climate change in the past for, you know, I mean, literally uh, decades. And what we found is that the, the, the role that greenhouse gases play is absolutely vital. Uh, the role that the evolution of the sun has played is absolutely vital. Uh, the role of, uh, you know, random things like uh, asteroid impacts um, has, been, has been important. Um, the role of uh, orbital variations, the, the fact that the planet uh, wobbles on its orbit uh, changes the climate because it changes how much radiation gets to the Arctic um, uh, on, on, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of year cycles. And, uh, and that turns out, as, as we kind of worked out in the 1970s, that that sets uh, the pacemaker for the whole history of ice ages over the last three million years. And, uh, but even, even going back further, you can see orbital cycles in sediments from Cretaceous uh, 100 million years ago. 
So, uh, so we know that these things impact the climate, right? And we've been studying how those mechanisms work. And now we get to the 20th century. And we can ask, okay, all those mechanisms that we've looked at in the past, are, are they still operating? And the answer is yes, they are. But what's the rate at which they're operating, right? So the, the wobbles in the Earth's orbit are very, very small over, you know, a 100-year period, 200-year period. Uh, the natural changes in greenhouse gases are also very small over those time periods. Um, the, uh, the impacts of volcanoes, uh, you know, they're, they're the same, but they tend to cool the climate. Um, the impact of the solar cycle, we can see that in the data, but it's actually, it doesn't seem to have much of an impact right at the surface. Can I, can I jump in on that? Because there's been some recent chatter out there about the current solar minimum and the lack of sunspot activities. And I've seen some people trying to spin that. Can you talk to that a little bit? Uh, let me finish this, this kind okay. of like puzzle thing, and then we'll talk about sure. the, that specifically thing uh, in a second. Um, so, you know, we, we can look at all of those natural things that are going on, and we can see, okay, well, what are the fingerprints of those changes, right? What would we have expected to see uh, over the last 150 years, say, uh, if those had been the only things that were happening? And, and what you find is that it doesn't come anywhere close to explaining uh, what's actually been seen. It doesn't come anywhere close to explaining the rate of mass loss from the ice sheets, the rate of temperature change, the rate of heat content increases in the ocean. Um, and so you're left with this big gap between what the natural theories would suggest and what's actually happened. And then we know that we've had an effect, right? We know that we have caused uh, carbon dioxide to increase and methane levels to increase and air pollution to increase. And we know that we've deforested the surface and we know that we've changed the albedo. And we know that, uh, you know, we, we, we have done all that. We've changed the ozone layer in the, in the stratosphere. We know that we've done these things. And then you can ask, well, what's the, what's the climate fingerprint of those changes? And so you can calculate those things with, with, the, with the models that we've developed. And what you find is that that matches what we've seen in terms of the trends uh, almost exactly. And when you put together all those human and natural uh, components, uh, you end up with an attribution of, of what's been happening uh, over the last 150 years that is very, very clear. Almost all the trends, all of the trends are us. Uh, and if you want to be a little bit more quantitative, it's plus or minus 10%, right? So it makes, it makes no sense now to be saying, oh, well, you know, there's natural climate change and there's human climate change. No, like what we've seen, the trends that we're concerned about, the, the warming that we've seen, the increase in heat content, the, the changes in, uh, in, in dynamics, what we're seeing is because of our activities. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, the, uh, the notion of, well, you know, the, the sun, you know, is the, the sun has its, is, has its uh, cycles, you know, and there are larger cycles on top of those cycles, perhaps, and uh, people have been speculating about a new uh, grand minima uh, in, in solar activity where uh, the solar cycle itself uh, becomes uh, very diminished and, and there are very small changes in, uh, uh, in 
uh, in sunspots and, and, and the associated solar activity. Um, and that, that's a very interesting uh, possibility. And, and, and if that pans out over the next uh, you know, 50 years or so, it will give us a very uh, good um, understanding of the natural variability of the sun. Uh, but when you actually come down to it and you say, okay, well, what, what's going to change? How is that going to compare to the increases in carbon dioxide? Uh, the answer is it's very, very small. Uh, we can see these changes quite clearly in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere and in the mesosphere, in the ozone, uh, above the, the troposphere. You know, we can see the solar cycles there. Uh, we, can, we can quantify that. We understand why those things are changing. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's a part of it that's associated with the ultraviolet changes, uh, which are larger than in the, in the visible range. Um, uh, and we can do all of those things. And we actually have a very good match to what's been happening uh, in the upper atmosphere because of solar changes, uh, you know, going back uh, as long as we have measurements. Uh, but when you actually ask them, well, what impact is that having at the surface? It's, it's very, very small. And it's very, um, it's crowded out by the noise of the weather. And so, you know, you can look at weather records and, you know, sometimes you can see something that's correlated to the sun, but then, you know, the next station over, it's totally not. Uh, you aggregate things, you know, there's a correlation for, you know, 20 years and then it disappears in the next 20 years and then it's opposite in the other next 20 years. Uh, and what you're seeing there is a, is a lot of, uh, you know, I, I can't quite remember the word for it, but it's, it's, you know, the ability of people to see patterns in random noise. And, uh, and there's a lot of the, uh, the solar literature, which, uh, is kind of hopefully looking for patterns in noise. And most of it, uh, does not bear the, the, the test of time. And, uh, you know, and you, and you look at it 20 years later and it's, it's totally wrong. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the final segment of Weather Geeks with Dr. Gavin Schmidt of GIS and getting a nice sort of 101 on climate modeling, paleoclimate, and sort of the big picture. And I really appreciate that Dr. Schmidt has done that. I think that was a really useful sort of discussion and narrative for many of our Weather Geeks listeners, because I think many of us, you know, particularly in the weather meteorology community, have had a lot of classes, but there aren't really as much in the way of climate curricula and courses in meteorology programs. I come out of a meteorology program at Florida State. I, I'm the director of one at the University of Georgia. And, you know, what I've found is weather expertise is not necessarily climate expertise and perhaps vice versa as well. And so, you know, I think just to step on a little soapbox for a second, I think more meteorology programs and atmospheric sciences programs need to embrace courses in uh, paleoclimate, climate modeling, uh, and the types of things that climatologists study as well, because it's they're not necessarily apples and apples. Now, I want to sort of shift the discussion now to an op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times in October of 2018. Mm -hmm. And it was entitled, How Scientists Cracked the Climate change case. And you just walked through uh, many of the variables like solar activity, air pollution, greenhouse gases, volcanic activity. 
you just walk through that. And by the way, we just, as we're taping this, we just celebrated our guests recognized the 40th anniversary of Mount St. Helens in Washington state. And we certainly know that volcanoes can have temporary cooling effects on the climate system. But in that same op-ed, you made the following comment. I want to read it verbatim and get your reaction to it. It is on par with the likelihood that a DNA match at a crime scene is purely coincidental. So how important is it that we do not dismiss conclusions of the scientific community as pure coincidence? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I wrote that. So I guess uh, I must have to, re- I must have a reaction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the, the, the point I was making with that op-ed is that we think about attribution all the time in other contexts. Uh, you know, when there's a, a crime has been committed, when we're trying to, you know, work out what's happening on the next episode of CSI, um, you know, we're, we're, we're very used to the idea that there are multiple suspects and then we winnow it down by looking for those fingerprints. Uh, and then, you know, when the, when the fingerprints match, whether they're DNA fingerprints or real fingerprints or, or fingerprints of uh, temperature change in the, in the, uh, in the stratosphere, they, they give you confidence in your conclusions. And, you know, the best cases, uh, you know, you use your, your suspicions, you, you eliminate the, uh, the things that are unlikely, and then you make a prediction of what would happen if that was the case. Right. Um, and so, you know, would we see uh, this change on that, the, you know, closed circuit TV camera that happened to be on? Or would we see this on the, uh, you know, in the um, uh, walking down the street? Whatever it is, you know, you make a prediction. And then when it comes true uh, and, you know, you make the big reveal in a, in a TV show or you make a, you make a conclusion in a scientific paper, uh, it, it's backed up because your suspicions, the fingerprints, the predictions all line up. And that's what we've got with this situation. You know, we've, we, we eliminated all of the, the natural uh, possibilities. We looked at the fingerprints of the human uh, activities. We made predictions based on our understanding of what that fingerprints were, like going back to the 1980s. And we've gone back now and looked at how good those predictions were. And they were all really quite good. Um, you know, the, 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 this notion that it's a surprise that the climate is warming is, is, is totally bogus. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise. It's been predicted uh, skillfully uh, for, for 30 or 40 years at the rate at which it's happening, the consequences of which uh, th- that we're seeing. Uh, you know, there are, there are open questions for sure. Uh, but the basic large-scale patterns that, that, w- that we're seeing um, are well understood and have been been predicted uh, to carry this this uh, this particular pattern uh, forward for, for many many decades. Yeah, and it, and you mentioned being being predicted for the last several decades, and the physical basis for understanding this warming response to greenhouse gases has been there for even longer than that. Yeah, let me let me give you one very concrete example, right? So okay. you know, back, back in the uh, in the nineteen nineties, uh, one of the fingerprints that was that was predicted. Uh, was that uh, once we uh, worked out that there was going to be more energy coming into the system uh, than leaving because of the greenhouse gases, uh, where was that energy going to go? 
Uh, and people said in the 1990s, oh, it's going to go in the oceans. So we should look in the oceans to see uh, whether the ocean heat content is increasing. And back in the 90s, we didn't have the data networks. We didn't have the computation. We didn't have that answer. Uh, but by the the by 20, 2000, by 2010, we had that answer. And the answer was, yes, it's warming up exactly as was predicted uh, 20 years earlier. Uh, and other people who are saying, no, the, the climate is not that sensitive, uh, their prediction was that there would be no change in the ocean heat content. Right, so so we had this kind of these dueling hypotheses way back in the 1980s, and the data, the new observations have come in very very strongly on the side of uh, the, the the human uh, cause of, of current climate change. Yeah, I think that's a key point. Uh, as we're taping this uh, uh, today, a new Weather Geeks podcast just came out out on the NASA uh, PACE mission, and I know that PACE is really thinking about aspects of the ocean. I mentioned that when you mentioned the oceans, because the oceans are so important in the climate system for many reasons, and uh, you're right, the data is really showing a lot of that heat is in the ocean now. In fact, the majority of the sort of climate warming, if you will, I think is in the ocean, and that has implications for all kinds of things and weather patterns and hurricane intensity and so forth. I want to kind of get ready to draw to a close. It's been great discussion with Gavin Schmidt. Two questions to sort of close us out here. What's next? You can put your crystal ball on. What's next for GIS in the next five years, five or so years? What's exciting on your horizons as the center director at GIS? And then our producers wanted to know, do you have something that you might um, drop in the listeners of, ears of the listeners who may not be fully convinced about climate change and want to become better communicators of science? So what's next for GIST first and any nuggets uh, for someone that's still trying to improve their communication and understanding of climate science? Uh, so GIS is uh, is going great guns. You know we've um, uh, we're contributing to uh, CMIP six, which is this latest comparison of all the different climate models. Uh, we're working very hard on trying to improve uh, predictions of regional sea level, which involves a lot of additional things that uh, that most most climate models don't uh, currently include. Uh, so we're, we're, we're doing a lot of work there. Uh, we're doing a lot of work kind of tying uh, our uh, understanding of Earth climate to our understanding of, uh, of other planets, climates. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, that NASA can do that, uh, that perhaps other, other groups can't. Um, and so we're very much uh, kind of at the forefront of thinking about things like habitability, you know, techno signatures, um, uh, as well as, you know, what, what the nature of the Anthropocene uh, and uh, where, where we are going and what is our place uh, in that climate future. Um, but when it when it comes to communicating uh, and 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 trying to uh, to talk to people, I mean, like, th- there's a lot of ways to waste your time uh, in communicating either to people who aren't listening or into the void. Uh, the key the key issue in in communicating at all times is, of course, to know your audience, to listen to where people are coming from, um, and sometimes you can find uh, the most interesting things buried. Uh, underneath a, a, a pile of dross in terms of uh, of arguments and, and i've found that you know my my biggest uh, kind of pleasure uh, i guess or my or my biggest kind of uh, yeah no pleasure uh, in in engaging with with people is is really 
trying to kind of drill down into what their real questions are. And so that's led me to think much more about the philosophy of science, the philosophy of modeling, um, why we do what we do, uh, and, and really come up with good reasons to, uh, uh, to justify what we do. Uh, and I think there are good reasons, right? It's not, it's not made up. Um, uh, and then, you know, help people kind of work through uh, those thinking processes uh, for themselves. There's, 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 nothing, there's nothing alien about climate science, except for the exoplanet stuff, right? But, but on Earth, there's nothing alien about climate science. Um, and all of the things that we do, all of the, the logic that we use, uh, all of the techniques that we use, uh, people understand them intuitively. Like we've used different words, we use jargon, we should probably stop doing that. Uh, but I think anybody can understand why we do what we do and why we've come to the conclusions uh, that we have. And we've done these things in open and uh, hopefully transparent ways. You know, you can download our code, you can, you can look at the data observations. There's a massive information that's out there uh, through the, the, the enormous efforts of, of thousands of scientists all across the world. Uh, and you can really dive in. And, and, and if, you're, if you're looking at it and you're really trying to answer, uh, like, interesting real questions, uh, then, you know, it, it, helping people along with that uh, is, is, is very pleasing and gratifying. Um, you know, continually arguing with people who just don't understand what they're talking about is not obviously a very good use of my time uh, or anybody's time, really. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, people will ask questions and, and, and it will lead you down a path uh, that that lets you kind of broaden and deepen that thought, uh, and sometimes uh, in ways that are, that are new uh, even to the scientific community. And that's where we have to end it. But before we go, it is time for our Geek of the Week. We'd like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or, or weather we at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jamie Botcher. She is a research assistant at SIMS at the University of Oklahoma, which is a state she has lived in for decades. So she has been seen her fair share of severe weather. Jamie lives and works in the sweet spot of radar meteorology and radar engineering at Oklahoma. Uh, she understands the trade-offs too. Thank you, Jamie, for your years of work in meteorology, and it was a pleasure to meet you at the AMS meeting in Boston earlier this year as well. If you or someone you know is uh, deserving of being a candidate for our next Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages. As we get out of here, Gavin, where, are, where can people find you on social media and any other websites you want to give? Um, so I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, at climate of Gavin. Um, that's mostly where I do, uh, any kind of communication that I do now. Uh, I still, I have a blog, uh, real climate, uh, which has been around since 2004, uh, which I still occasionally, uh, keep up to date, but, uh, uh, that's, uh, yeah, Twitter, Twitter is my main, uh, go-to place right now. So, so climate of Gavin. Uh, and what about your GIS or NASA websites? Oh, yeah, so the GIST website is, uh, is a wealth of information, uh, you know, particularly about uh, temperature changes, uh, model simulations, and the like. So that's um, uh, www.gist.nasa.gov. Uh, and there's, a, there's a, a whole wealth of, uh, of information about the science and the papers uh, and the data that we've been working on. 
and I want to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Gavin's a great follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you.